Satire apparently is no joke in Egypt. Today, Monday, April 1st, this is The World. A popular Egyptian comedian is hauled in for questioning. We examine how freedom of expression is faring post-Arab Spring. The sort of boundaries that are being broken are new, but of course satire is out of place in a country like Egypt for many years. And in Syria, one community questions the rebels' vision of the future. The free armies, they don't want Bashar and ask them who you want. They can't give an answer. They don't have anyone. We'll hear from Syrian Armenians who fled their country's civil war. And later, a visit to the world's biggest fish market. From Public Radio International, the BBC, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In the early days of American democracy, you could always count on Benjamin Franklin for a good political joke to put things into perspective. In the early days of Egypt's democracy, you've got Bassem Youssef. He's been called the Egyptian John Stewart. The former heart surgeon shot to fame during Egypt's revolution in 2011 after he posted videos on YouTube lampooning political figures. And those videos paved the way for a TV show with millions of viewers. But over the weekend, Bassem Youssef saw what happens when he thinks he's funny, but the Egyptian government does not. A warrant was issued and Youssef was questioned by authorities for a few hours before being released on bail. The comedian allegedly insulted Islam and President Mohamed Morsi. Here's Yusuf's response. I don't have any personal vendettas against anyone. On the contrary, it would be an honor for me to host any of those I criticize on my show. It would be a success for myself and also a success for freedom of thought and expression, as it would send a message to the people that they, the Muslim Brotherhood, are in power. They accept criticism and that once they leave the show, I'd still criticize them. This happens all over the world. So why can't it be for us? That is a key question, and not just in Egypt, but also in other Arab Spring countries like Tunisia and Libya, where revolutions have toppled long-standing rulers. Michael Wahid Hanna is a fellow at the Century Foundation. Let, let's start with Egypt, Michael. Why is the government so upset with people like uh, this comedian Bassem Youssef? Well, I think we've seen a rhetorical commitment to notions of freedom of expression, but it's clear that they are not deeply rooted yet. And I think these new found freedoms are going to be rigorously tested in a lot of ways. And we see this very clearly with the case of Bessim Youssef, a satirist, a very popular comedian, somebody who, who has skewered the Muslim Brotherhood-led government. And despite their protestations that they are okay with notions of freedom of speech and expression, uh, this has obviously hit a nerve. Uh, this is a very popular show, perhaps the most popular show in Egypt. And it, this is something new. Egypt's media space was semi-free in the past, although there were very clear red lines that could never be crossed. But it's now become a very unruly and raucous forum. And within that uh, space, there is a very freewheeling and direct criticism of the rulers uh, in power. And that's something new. And what about uh, satire in Tunisia and Libya right now? Any difference there? I mean, has it evolved in the same way as Egypt or differently? 
Well, differently. I mean, I think the starting point for each of these societies was different. As I mentioned, the media space in Egypt was controlled, but slightly more free in Egypt. You had a proliferation of press and even opposition papers that had some freedom to express various kinds of dissent and opposition within some boundaries. Uh, and of course, the media space in a place like Libya was much more tightly controlled. We did see last year in Libya, the Supreme Court strike down a transitional law that had put into place some restrictions on political speech. And I think that's a positive. But of course, Libya is starting from a, a much different place than Egypt, which had a much more robust press and even some opposition. In Tunisia, I think many of the potential infringements and threats with regard to freedom of expression have come from vigilantes and from religious rhetoric. And we've seen death threats made mm. to uh, various uh, various uh, Tunisian journalists. But I think Egypt is perhaps unique in the proliferation of legal measures that uh, are very clearly aimed at stifling speech, expression, and dissent. You know, I saw some interesting numbers showing how humor was such a crucial part of the uprising in Egypt, in Tahrir Square. Uh, almost as many tweets and social media communications joking about Mubarak and the old guard officials, as there were about organizing and who has to be where uh, in the square at what time. Why do you think humor is so crucial, do you think, uh, now with these emerging democracies? Well, in a place like Egypt, uh, it's long prided itself on its sense of humor. It's uh, sort of become the one of the sort of national stereotypes that Egyptians are, are a people that like their jokes. Uh, <laughs> and we've seen this over and over again. You know, when Besim Yusuf shows up in front of the courthouse wearing a giant hat mocking the president, you know, this is, uh, I, I think, an exaggerated form thereof. But uh, I think uh, Egyptians have perhaps in the recent past used humor as an escape, I think, from from some of the difficulties that Egyptians have long faced. Well, Michael Wahid Hanna of the Century Foundation in New York, thank you for your thoughts on this. Thanks very much. There's not a lot of humor in Syria these days, and understandably so. Since the start of the war two years ago, more than one million Syrians have fled their country. About 10,000 of these refugees are Syrians of Armenian descent, and they've gone back to their ancestral homeland. These Syrians are Christians, and many of them have just celebrated their first Easter in Armenia. Reporter Marine Olivezi spent the holiday weekend with one Syrian-Armenian family in the capital Yerevan. Okay, you can test it. But which one should I start with? Test it all. The family greets me on Thursday with a tray of pastries, Arabic recipes with an Armenian flair. We make it every Easter. It's called a kahke. The mother and daughter advise me to start with a pebble-shaped cookie stuffed with pistachios and coated in sugar, their favorites. The Syrian-Armenian specialty tastes like home to them. The ingredients came straight from the hometown of Aleppo in Syria. Every stuff, we bought it from Aleppo shop here. The father, Sako, says trucks arrive from Aleppo every week to restock the local markets with Syrian goods. He says their car followed one of these food trucks all the way from Syria when the family fled six months ago. They traveled through checkpoints, three international border crossings, and reached Armenia two days and a half later. Sako ran a successful business as a goldsmith in Aleppo, but after two straight months of shelling and shooting, the family had enough. He says he made up his mind to leave within two days. He just had one problem, what to do with his oldest daughter. I want to bring my daughter with me. She was uh, engaged. So he said, I, I don't want to come. I will stay with my fiancé. 
So I married her in two days. I married her and said, this is your husband, go. What you want to do, do it. His two younger daughters, Talin, 23, and Christina, 14, recall their big sister's bizarre wedding day. You know, when you go to wedding, you see the bride, wow, it's decorations, and then you go to party, and that's... Uh, no, there, there wasn't any such a thing like that. We just said, oh, come on, get married, and we go home safely. Yeah, the priest was talking. The church, you know, was shaking from the tank. There were tanks in every street, every end of the street. At this point, Sako interrupts Christina. He wants to make sure I don't get the wrong idea about the tanks. They were here to protect us, he says. Yeah, Syrian army tanks, they protect us. And the other side is shooting with the sniper. So the tank looking, where is the sniper? And hitting there. This family fled the same war that's driven more than a million people out of Syria. But unlike most Syrian refugees, this Christian family blames the rebels, not President Bashar al-Assad, for the violence. I'm afraid the government go down. Because if the government lose, the Syria will be burned. I think so. Will be like Iraq. The Christian, no, no Christian is there now. Where is the good government? No good government. The family sees what happened to Christians in Iraq and Egypt after the fall of authoritarian but secular regimes and they're scared. Sako and his wife, Maral, support Assad because they see him as a guardian of minority rights. Maral's grandfather fled the Armenian genocide in the Ottoman Empire almost a century ago. Maral says that history of persecution is still vivid for them, and she says it's hard to be optimistic with extremist groups gaining ground in Syria. The family does make a distinction between al-Qaeda-backed insurgents and the Free Syrian Army, but they have no love for the opposition. The free armies, they don't want Bashar and ask them who you want. They can't give an answer. They don't have anyone. Easter Sunday celebrations unfold with hymns and silver rattles at St. Gregory Cathedral in Yerevan. Sako goes to church with a friend from Aleppo and they meet more Syrian Armenians there. This is my friend George from Syria. He beginning to work here. A new company, car service. Most of the Syrians here say they're grateful for the help of Armenia. It's providing school tuition, health care, and passports within six months. But they still say Syria is home, and they long to go back. Sako lights candles after the service. He says they're for his children and for peace. Outside the church, a Syrian-Armenian boy dressed in camouflage plays with his toy, a plastic gun. We ask why he brought it with him to the church. His father says he's just a kid who loves soldiers. For the world, I'm Marine Olivezi, Yerevan, Armenia. You can get a good feel of Syrian culture taking root in Armenia. Marine sent us a slideshow from Yerevan. It's at theworld.org. A story on the front page of the New York Times struck a chord today, with us, perhaps with you too. It told the story of a six-year-old girl in a Kabul refugee camp who was going to be sold in marriage to pay off a medical debt of about $2,500. Her father had borrowed the money to cover the cost of his wife's hospital care. Elders in the refugee camp in Afghanistan held a hearing known as a jirga and determined that the girl should be given in marriage to the creditor's 17-year-old son. 
But after the story came out today, the New York Times website issued an online update. It said that an anonymous donor working through an American lawyer had paid the debt. That American lawyer is Kimberly Motley. We reached her in Kabul. She says it was not an easy process to reverse the Jirga's decision. The only way you can annul the decision first Jirga is to having basically appealing that decision to a second Jirga. And so because I was very heavily involved in this, they agreed that I could be in charge of the second Jirga. Motley is grateful the creditor and his son agreed to the second jirga. She calls the case shocking, but unfortunately not surprising. If there is a silver lining to the case, it's the response. Tricia Silberman is president of the Ashiana Foundation, which supports grassroots organizations in Afghanistan. Silberman says her foundation was planning to cover the debt, but was beaten to it, though all day they've been receiving pledges to save the girl. Within the first couple of hours of the story being out, we have promises of almost $10,000, but we have not actually been paid that amount of money, so I don't like to claim that just yet. We can say we know we've received at least $5,000 toward this cause. Silberman says the money will be used to educate and care for working street children around Afghanistan. She says they plan to open a clinic next month in Kabul so families won't have to go into debt for medical care. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. And we're going to talk Kurdish today and the changing status of the Kurdish language in Turkey. But before we head to Turkey, our language editor, Patrick Cox, is here. And Patrick, tell us where you're likely to hear Kurdish spoken these days. Well, it's funny. I mean, you might think it would be wherever Kurdish people are, but that is not necessarily the case, uh, such as the nature of the status of Kurdish culture and language from one country to another. So there are four main countries where the Kurds are, and that is Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Turkey. Let's take Iraq first. They have got the greatest degree of freedom when it comes to use of the Kurdish language. Up in northern Iraq, in Kurdistan, ever since the first Gulf War, they've basically been allowed to use Kurdish just as much as they see fit in the schools, wherever, in public places. Over in Iran, it's a little bit different. The language of instruction is not Kurdish. It's not used in the schools. But you can write in Kurdish. There's Kurdish media. Maybe you're not going to get into trouble for writing in Kurdish. You may get into trouble for what you write. Mm. Uh, Over in Syria, uh, on the other side of Iraq, the situation is much more murky. Before the outbreak of the civil war, Kurdish was suppressed by the central government. But now with the breakdown of central authority, there's really nobody keeping tabs on what is happening locally. And in some Kurdish areas, Kurdish has been reintroduced in the schools and it's being widely spoken. Which brings us to Turkey. And you can bet they've been watching what's been happening elsewhere. Well, let's hear from Turkey, Patrick. Specifically, we'll go to the city of Diyarbakir, home of many thousands of Kurds. And that's where Matthew Brunwasser filed this report. Just 10 years ago, Professor Hassan Tanriverdi could have been arrested by security forces, blindfolded, and taken to an underground prison and tortured just for doing this. Speaking Kurdish was banned under Turkish law. 
The language challenged the national myth that all citizens of Turkey are ethnic Turks, so it was treated as a crime against the state. Repression and forced assimilation were so brutal that many Kurds in Turkey no longer speak Kurdish fluently. Today, Tom Reverdi is teaching future teachers of Kurdish language at the state Dijle University. Our people are excited. A language has just been freed. We are creating a master's program for teaching Kurdish. For the first time, these teachers are able to learn how to teach Kurdish. <laughs> Professor Tan Riverdi says that 1,500 students applied for 150 spots in the program. Sevet Turkolu is a former history teacher, now a student in the Kurdish course. He says that Turkey's government is righting the wrongs done to the Kurds by helping them learn their language. He says he's sure that he will have a job when he graduates. The Prime Minister of Turkey said so. That's why they made this course. Kurdish is now an elective course in schools. We hope that all subjects will be taught in Kurdish someday. But for now, it's most important that we focus on learning our language and culture. But not all students trust Ankara's good intentions. The government introduced an elective course this year for fifth graders in public schools to learn Kurdish two hours per week. Over the next three years, it will expand to more grades, but still two hours a week. Student Adem Kurt says this means that the government policy is not serious. Learning a foreign language doesn't work with only one or two lessons. If they are serious about giving Kurds our rights, they should open the way for mother tongue education in all subjects. After years of promises, many Kurds are skeptical of any offer by the Turkish government. Some say the government has no political will to really educate Kurds in Kurdish, even Taha Tursun, a student who's enrolled in the course. Even though they are saying that they will hire us as teachers, it's a lie. It's only a red herring so that they can tell society, look, we are training graduate students how to teach Kurdish. The Kurdish language problem is taken care of. But the government has made other moves in what it calls its Kurdish opening. Bans on the Kurdish language have been wiped from the books, and the state created a television channel in Kurdish. But the growing demand for teaching all subjects in the Kurdish language has still not been addressed. Didim Collinsworth, from the International Crisis Group in Istanbul, says the demand is common to Kurds from all political, regional, and religious backgrounds. I can say that is probably the strongest demand that they have. They see it as a recognition of their Kurdishness, as their, of their identity, of their culture. It all culminates in, in being able to learn Kurdish in schools. Collinsworth says that generations of repression has taken its toll on the language. There aren't many Kurds fluent in Kurdish. They are used to speaking Turkish for all official matters. Even in Diyarbakir, the capital of Kurdish nationalism, Collinsworth says that none of the newspapers are Kurdish language only. We were told by a Kurdish TV host that they had a hard time finding people to speak on their shows because nobody spoke Kurdish that well anymore, good enough to be on TV. The attempt to crush the Kurdish language is now a dark chapter of Turkey's history. But the battle for making Kurdish a second official language lies ahead. As Turkey struggles to become a more open society, its Kurdish-speaking citizens may continue to provide the biggest push. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Diyarbakir, Turkey.
And online, we have a slideshow of shots from that grad school classroom. See those pictures and listen to more stories of the rise of Kurdish in Turkey in the latest World in Words podcast hosted by the world's language editor, Patrick Cox. That's all at theworld.org. A quick note now on a sports story making waves in Britain, Sunderland. That's one of the soccer teams in England's top-rated Premier League has just fired its coach. That's normal for a team looking to improve results. What isn't normal is the reaction to Sunderland's new coach. He's a former Italian soccer star named Paolo Di Canio, and in the past he's admitted to being a fascist. He was even known for giving fans a stiff raised-arm salute. His hiring was greeted with dismay by some Sunderland fans. One of the club's board members resigned, that would be former Labor Foreign Secretary David Miliband, who said he wanted to distance himself from Di Canio's past political statements. And an anti-racism organization demanded that the new Sunderland coach clarify his political beliefs. Well, today, Di Canio issued a statement labeling the whole controversy stupid and ridiculous. It promises to be an entertaining and interesting end of the season for Sunderland, that's for sure. Just enough time before the break for a quick geo-quiz. We want you to name the biggest wholesale fish market in the world. It's located in Asia, and it dates back to the 16th century, when Japan's military rulers wanted to ensure that they had a steady supply of fish. Nowadays, this market handles something like 700 tons of seafood each year, from the tiniest sardines up to the giant tuna that are so much in demand by sushi chefs. Every day, this market that opens each morning before dawn, that's when the bluefin tuna are auctioned off for thousands of dollars each to bidders wearing rubber boots and baseball hats. We'll pay a pre-dawn visit to this fish market when we come back with the answer later in the program. This is The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, life along the U.S.-Mexico border as portrayed in people's tattoos. I tattooed this truck driver one time, and uh, he got this big semi-truck on his back. And there was a Grim Reaper, like, holding on to the cab. And there was just, like, kilos of cocaine flying out the back of it. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Most of us do it, whether to get home from the airport or to get across town in a hurry. We hail a cab, and often the driver of that taxi is an immigrant. Recent census data show 41% of American cab drivers are immigrants. Here in Boston, the percentage is much higher, and those immigrant drivers are the focus of an investigative series this week by the Boston Globe. Marcella Bombardieri is one of the Globe reporters on the series. Tell us what you found, Marcella, in this investigation into the taxi industry here. 
Well, we found that many cab drivers are really exploited by the owners of the cabs. The taxi business in Boston, like in many cities in the U.S., is very highly regulated with the the city controlling who has these taxi licenses or medallions. But we find that the city, while it can come down very hard on drivers who do anything wrong, hasn't done anything about the widespread exploitation and overcharging of uh, many of these owners are imposing on the drivers. So what are the biggest ways in which drivers are being exploited? They actually have to pay to uh, rent a cab, so they don't get any benefits at all, and they have to pay about $100 just to get on the road for a 12-hour shift. And they can spend easily half their working day, sometimes their entire working day, just paying that back before they're making money to actually take home. On top of that, because there are so many more drivers than there are taxis uh, licensed to be on the road, they're desperate for work, and they end up getting uh, extorted, basically, for small bribes from the the dispatchers who give out the keys to the cabs. And on top of that, um, they're not getting the receipts that that are required by the city to um, show that they paid their lease. And so they can um, easily be told, well, last week you didn't uh, put uh, all the money in the envelope, so now you owe us another uh, $50. So they're pretty much at the mercy of the owners. Right. And your investigation, uh, which we will link to at theworld.org, has ample evidence uh, of these bribes taking place. Tell us, Marcella, who are the taxi drivers in Boston? I, I, what percentage of them are from other countries? Uh, almost all of them are, are immigrants. Many very recent immigrants find it, it's um, uh, the easiest way they can uh, break into a, a job that, that they see as a, as a decent job with a certain amount of dignity, um, a certain amount of independence, and the, the opportunity they think potentially to make pretty good money, but then they find they're often very disappointed in, in what they end up uh, making. I'm sure many listeners, though, will have had the experience of of having difficulty conversing with a taxi driver who is an immigrant who might not have a full command of English. And I'm just wondering, how does their fact of being an immigrant and having some of those challenges, does that mean that they're more likely to be treated unfairly by taxi cab owners? I do think that plays into it because I think some of them don't know the system in the U.S. Some of them don't know their rights. Certainly many of them come from countries where you have to, you know, pass someone money to get something done. And so it's easy to exploit them that way and and they just don't have a lot of other options. Does that pose a particular challenge when they want to try and organize against some of these dubious taxi companies? Absolutely. I think that uh, some of them feel very vulnerable, so it's difficult for them to stand up to this. They don't think they have a lot of opportunities. Many of them come from countries where the authorities are not considered a safe option to turn to. So the idea of complaining, say, to the police department, which regulates taxis in Boston, is very frightening to them. Now, one of the reporters on this investigation for the Boston Globe actually got a job as a taxi driver to kind of go underground. No doubt it's a hard job. Many who've done it know it's a slog. What did your colleague tell you was the hardest part for him? Well, he was just very struck by how difficult it is to show up and uh, rent a cab. You know, he's being treated as an independent contractor who's leasing the taxi and he's sort of jostling with all these other people who are trying to get a cab um, because the numbers are limited, and he's uh, watching people hand over these small bribes, uh, you know, could be $5, could be $20. He didn't do that um, himself. He didn't uh, give them any money, so he had to wait for hours for a cab. Um, He also then he found um, when he came back, he uh, would fill his gas tank, as you're supposed to do when you return the cab, and he 
would have um, the gas pouring over onto his shoe. He, w- he filled the tank up so much. And then he was later told, well, you didn't fill up the tank. You owe us another $2. So while those amounts of money may be small, they really add up. And when people are already making could be minimum wage, it, it's um, painful for them to have to turn over that extra money. Marcella Bombardieri, one of the Globe reporters who conducted a nine-month investigation into the tough economics of driving a taxi in Boston. Marcella, thank you. Thank you so much, Marco. One way to deal with challenges and setbacks is through tattoos. Stick with me here. I'm serious. A lot of people get inked with an inspirational image or with words that remind them of what's really important to them. And if you live along the U.S.-Mexico border, your tattoos may very well reflect the challenges of life there. The world's Jason Margolis found that out in a corner of southeast Texas along the Rio Grande. Old school tattoos in Brownsville, Texas, looks like pretty much any other tattoo shop in America. The walls are adorned with images you can choose from. Skulls, snakes, hearts, and more than a few bare-breasted women. There's also a lot of artwork representing Mexico. David Delgado was going this direction. Delgado was born in Mexico City and was getting a tattoo that reads Echo y México, or Made in Mexico. Pretty much it's the stamp that happens or is put on individuals or, or items that get exported out of Mexico. So I'm a direct export, so it was a, it's, it's a literal translation. So. This is a popular tattoo down here. I asked Delgado why he was choosing to express his cultural heritage in permanent ink on his skin. Why do people pay for uh, art, you know, that you hang on the wall? I think tattoos end up being like uh, walking art, you know, so it becomes a, a gallery of a person and every... Pretty much, I think if you ask somebody, every tattoo has a story or has a meaning behind it. So, Daniel Aguilar has been researching the meanings of tattoos along the border here. He's a graduate student at the University of Texas at Brownsville. While tattoos have gone increasingly mainstream throughout the U.S., they're also still associated with youth gang culture. Aguilar argues against this stereotype. He took me on a tour of some local tattoo shops in the area. I think that a lot of people here, if they're not valued in the schools, if they're not valued socially in their groups, they're going to look for it through artwork, through tattoos. They want to be socially relevant. Everybody longs for that, and uh, a lot of people find that through tattoos. If you're wondering, Aguilar is one of those people. I've always struggled with my culture. Um, I don't look Hispanic. I give this white person impression. especially sometimes when I speak or mispronounce a word in Spanish. I've always struggled to find my identity, my cultural identity. Life along the border in early 21st century America is more complex than what most of us know. Not long ago, the border used to be one united place, with Mexicans and Americans easily flowing across back and forth. No longer. Today, U.S. Border Patrol agents swarm the area. Towns on the Mexico side battle drug-related gang violence. People are afraid to go south, and it's hard for people to come north. And families in Texas can include a complicated mix of U.S. citizens, residents, and undocumented immigrants. No way. Back at Old School Tattoos, I asked the artists about images they've done that reflect border life today. Here's Jake, who didn't want to use a last name. Yeah, man. I tattooed this truck driver one time, and uh, he got this big semi-truck on his back. And there was a Grim Reaper, like, holding onto the cab. And there was just, like, kilos of cocaine flying out the back of it. That's what he got. I think that reflects border life pretty pretty to the T. There are also a lot of requests for religious artwork. The Virgin Mary and the Grim Reaper are two popular choices. 
Catholicism is deeply ingrained in this region. Daniel Aguilar, the grad student, has an angel on his forearm. When we were visiting tattoo shops together, he got the bug for more ink. He decided to add the devil. I would not normally let somebody do that on me, but uh, because of my religious changes I've gone through over the past couple of... Should I not be tattooing the devil on you right now? (laughs) Aguilar describes himself as a former Catholic. He says these days he identifies well with Lucifer. Bringer of light. He has killed 10 people in the Bible, whereas God has killed uh, 2 million plus in the Bible. Lucifer never turns anybody away. He does what he's told. God tells him what to do and he does it. I would consider him one of the most obedient angels. Some of the religious tattoos also have a border twist. Christopher Daniel de Leon is a tattoo artist at Flaming Heart Tattoo in the nearby city of Edinburgh. De Leon says he once had a Border Patrol agent request the Archangel Michael on his chest. The traditional image is, you know, Michael standing over like the, the devil, the fallen devil. But in this case, he wanted me to go ahead and draw it up where he was actually suited as a Border Patrol. And uh, that was a different twist on something. And, you know, he, he was proud of it and all that. So I, I dug it. De Leon also gets a lot of requests for Aztec art and sugar skulls, the colorful icons associated with the Mexican holiday, the Day of the Dead. So in a way, it kind of like kills two birds with one stone. Like, hey, you know what? I want to get something kind of like with a Mexican culture, but at the same time, I want to look badass. De Leon says there are a lot of tattoo artists here in the Rio Grande Valley. He didn't know exactly why there are so many, but from his perspective, it's a way to make a living as an artist. De Leon showed me a binder of some tattoos he's done. They were elaborate, unique, impressive drawings. But there still are some people that just see it as like tattooing. Like they're like, oh, it's some punk with tattoos. But if they were to actually look further into it, like to see if you, to see a passionate tattoo artist, it's just the same thing as if you were to see like a passionate like painter, you know what I mean? But in this case, the artist's canvas feels pain. De Leon says he's well aware of this, and he appreciates the trust his clients give him to display his art. Because that's like total commitment, you know, once, once it's on there, that's it. Once you get it, then you have to live with it. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Edinburgh, Texas. Hear the buzz of the needle and see some of the other designs that evoke the border, all from tattoo artist Jake. We've got an audio slideshow at theworld.org. The Tokyo fish market we asked you to name in our geo-quiz is really like no other. The Tsukiji fish market is the biggest wholesale fish market in the world. It's like a village in the city. It opens for business each morning before the sun comes up. That's when tons and tons of tuna packed in ice are spread out for auction. Reporter Steve Delinsky visited the Tsukiji fish market and sent us this audio postcard. Well, the first thing you hear at the crack of dawn is the ringing of some incredibly loud bells to call buyers over to the um, area where the auctioneers are working. And uh, there's this frenetic pace of shouting and calling out, and it it, it almost sounds like singing at at, at one point. There's this rhythmic, lilting voice that you hear from the, the auctioneer calling out to buyers, and then you hear the buyers and you see the buyers raising their fingers, showing different signs. And um, one of the things I had a hard time with this morning was figuring out what was actually being said. And fortunately, I'm with Shinji Sakamoto, who worked here at the market for eight years as a fish buyer and now gives tours of this area. And Shinji, uh, maybe you can tell me, what was going on? Are they asking for just more, more money? Okay, so the auction guys are shouting the price, the uh, buyer 
is giving their sign with their hands, and then the auctioneer is, is uh, reading the sign and then shouting the price. And then the, the highest price wins the tuna. So the auctioneer has to be very loud. We saw dozens of deep-frozen tunas on these pallets spread across this enormous floor at Tsukiji. Fluorescent lights, super early in the morning, a lot of people are bleary-eyed, but men are walking around beforehand sticking picks into the tunas and kind of hacking away. What are they looking for? Actually, it's really tough to see the freshness of the tuna because it's, it's frozen. But even frozen, they have to rate the tuna, how the quality is so that the buyers check all the, tuna, the quality of the, all the tuna one by one from the tail of the meat. They take a little bit of meat and then rub uh, on the fingers and they see the, how the fatness is in. And also they use a flashlight to see that how the red meat is really uh, red. I saw a lot of fish, mm. uh, flashlights being used this exactly, morning too. Yes. Now tell me where we're standing right now. We're in the middle of the market. This is, as, as we said, the largest fish market in the world. What are we seeing here? I mean, I, I want to say everything under the sun, but really it's everything under the water surface because I, I've seen oysters and uh, shrimp and tiger shrimp and octopus. Uh, actually, Tsukiji market has everything because it's the center of Tokyo and then the best fish to Tsukiji anytime. Of course, the great thing about being here right now is that we can go get sushi because there are tons of restaurants right outside the fish market. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it is. If you, if you go around the Tsukiji, you get hungry very so, quickly. So, so I think we should go get some sushi, okay? All right, sure. All right, Shinji All right. Sakamoto, thank you so much for your time. Arigato. Thank you very much. Arigato gozaimashita. Now, one of those sounded like the dinner bell. Thanks to reporter Steve Dolinsky for sending us that postcard from the Tsukiji fish market in central Tokyo, which is the answer to today's Geo Quiz. And we've got winners and losers to mention today. First, the big losers, and this is nothing to celebrate, the fish. Many of the tuna species on sale at the Tsukiji fish market are badly overfished. Bluefin tuna in particular are near collapse, according to the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. As for the winners, they're the folks who got the right answer in today's geotexting game. They include Aaron in Santa Cruz, California, Rebecca in English Bay, Alaska, and one more... Hi, this is Susan from Brunswick, Maine, where I listen to the world on Maine Public Broadcasting and play the GeoQuiz frequently, although this is the first time I ever won. I am such a foodie, so I'm aware of big big fish markets, and the one in, in Tokyo being Tsujiki Fish Market. Congratulations, Susan. If you'd like to cast your net next time, just text GeoQuiz one word to 69866. This is The World on PRI. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. These are uneasy days for South Africa. Former President Nelson Mandela remains in the hospital. He's suffering from pneumonia. Yesterday, the South African government said his condition was improving, but Mandela is 94, and this is the third time he's been hospitalized since December. His spokesman, Mac Marharaj, says Mandela saw visitors today. He spent part of the day with some members of his family, today being family day. And those members appreciate the support they have been receiving from the, from the public. Even though Mandela has been out of office for years, it's painful for many South Africans to think of a South Africa without him. In some ways, he is South Africa, or at least what many of his countrymen wish it would be. He embodies the way South Africa shook off white minority rule of apartheid without violence, with grace, and by democratic election. 
A lot has changed since the days of apartheid. South African music, at least to many ears, used to be limited to the great sounds of township jive. But for the past few years, I've been hearing black South African musicians producing sounds that, frankly, don't sound very South African. You'll find heavy-duty rock elements and electronic beats that evoke headbanging more than they do township jive. None of this should be totally surprising, though. There's been a thriving underground punk scene in South Africa for decades, and that scene is getting more attention through a new documentary film, Punk in Africa. One of the bands featured in the doc is National Wake. The group sprang up in Johannesburg in the late 1970s, but their run didn't last long. That's because National Wake was a multiracial band trying to make it during apartheid. Marissa Neff has a story. Ivan Katie started the band National Wake with two brothers, Gary and Punka Koza. The three bandmates grew up in and around Johannesburg, but their experiences couldn't have been more different. While Ivan was raised in the white suburbs, Gary and Punka's family was forcibly moved to Soweto, where the apartheid government was consolidating the city's black population. A lot of their life has to do with the pain and um, anguish that that move caused because they felt pretty dislocated in Soweto. And when they first went to Soweto, I think they had a lot of trouble integrating. One of their brothers was, uh, I think, killed in the move, being strangers in a strange land. When a mutual friend introduced Katie to the Kusa brothers in 1978, he already knew he wanted to start a band with the name National Wake. Katie says it embodied his disillusionment with the apartheid regime and served as a call for its demise. When I met Gary and Punk and we started jamming, I just knew this is National Wake. You know, this was the band that fulfilled the promise of the name. It's a, it's a strange sort of thing for me how the name prefigured the actual lineup, but it did. Katie was an architecture student, and the communal house where he lived played a huge role in the formation of the band. The house was located in the white enclave of Parktown, but it was isolated enough for the band to practice without bothering neighbors and private enough for Gary and Punka to live there without raising suspicion. The trip from Parktown to Soweto was a, quite a long journey and actually, you know, filled with all sorts of potential hazards. And after a while, they just stayed. And this house eventually, which had started off with a um, bunch of students from the university, some artists, it gradually became the band house. And I mean, it was quite a scene. When the house was sold three years later, the band lost their safe haven, and things began to fall apart. Even their growing popularity fed into their troubles. As they started gigging at bigger clubs, often whites only, their black fans, who had been cheering on the band at underground venues and township clubs, were left out. And then there were the police visits. At times we were visited by the police three times a day. They took us in for questioning once or twice. They arrested uh, some of the band members at various times for not having permits. It was life during wartime. I mean, the bullets were uh, music.
like international news illuminated the band's growing panic over what was going on in the country. The song is about how the South African press was censoring much of what was happening, and the refrain references the feeling of having a ticking bomb inside that's about to blow. It was very strange when I, for example, would go to the movies, which was then segregated, and I'd be part of the band and part of that reality, and I'd go to one of these places that was in the white reality, and I would feel just how blind, how everyone was asleep. They had no idea what was broiling, and I just say, I just feel the bomb, you know, I'd feel like the bomb is what would be needed to wake people up from this absolute sleep, you know. In 1981, National Wake released its first and only album. Soon after, the band disintegrated. In the decades since, Gary and Punkakosa died, both in their late 40s. These days, Ivan Katie works as an architect in Los Angeles. In 2011, Katie re-released the band's self-titled debut, 30 years after its first pressing. And there may be more. Oh, I'd say this good... Um... 20 songs that have never been released. All of these recordings put together, they speak of the whole evolution of the band from a sort of naive, almost belief that we could miraculously change everything just by playing this music and making this thing manifest to realizing what a struggle it was and what, what, um, what the country was going through and what it would go through. For The World, I'm Marissa Neff. music so little time you can watch archival footage of national wake on stage in 1979 not to mention riots on the streets in south africa that's all at theworld.org from the nan and bill harris studios at wgbh in boston i'm marco werman we'll be back tomorrow The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.